0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. It's episode 113. Today I'm going to do a little bit of feature on elms because my species featured species is the American elm. And I just feel like I can't just talk about the American elm without talking about the rock elm or the Dutch elm or the witch elm or the cedar elm. So we're going to talk a little bit about the elms while shining a bit of a spotlight on specifically Olmus Americana, the American elm. I also have some questions about cultivars, specifically a cultivar of walnut. I'm gonna talk a bit about spruce as an exterior material and then um, kind of a woodworking, but also a lumber question about creating, um, let's we'll just call it edge ripping. Um, you're faced with a thick board and you're ripping off a strip and flipping it or rotating it to change the edge grain into face grain and what that might mean. So let's just jump into things here. First and foremost, thanks for the questions I'm focusing on this week. They actually all come from patrons of the show. So thank you, everybody, for supporting the show. You can do so at patreon.com slash lumber update. And for those $8 patrons and above, you are going to get this American Elm sticker sent off in the mail to you. It should be arriving probably shortly after Thanksgiving here in the U.S., And uh, I'm really, really loving doing these. And I'll clue you in. I've got the next six already done, sitting on the table next to me. I'm very excited for what's coming. But I do wanna address something. I've gotten a lot of questions from people who have joined uh, Patreon recently and gotten their sticker and they love their sticker and they're like, I gotta have them all. I gotta have the earlier ones. I am not making them available at this point. I'm kind of going for like, the Disney vault or like Hallmark collectibles or something. I'm I, creating a little bit of FOMO here by and a little bit of collectability by not making the earlier stickers available. I will at some point, I'm not sure when, I'm probably gonna put together like a quote unquote collection of stickers first and get through that before I release earlier ones. Um, I feel like those who jumped on the bandwagon early um, should be rewarded for their early adopters. So yeah, for those who have asked, I am not ignoring you. Um, I will make them available at some point. I just don't know when yet. So yeah, um, don't miss out. Become a patron and get your sticker. This is a good one this week. I'm looking at it right now. It's uh, it's purdy. Anyway, let's, let's move on. I had a great article sent to me from Andrew about tree filters so um you know the trees they they have xylem and phloem uh, the xylem um oh shoot i just totally forgot which one's which i believe the xylem sucks the nutrients up and the phloem pushes the nutrients down like pushes into the waste and the medulla rates i could be wrong on that that's not really the point um, some mit researchers have discovered that the the essentially xylem is a series of straws but there are membranes kind of between each junction think of like bamboo and you've got like hollow bamboo bamboo but at each one of those little nodules there's like connective tissue and almost it looks like a filter similar thing going on here um with the xylem and they realized that this could be a pretty effective filter and they discovered that it was actually um used to filter like 99 percent of like e coli and rotavirus and it's made from trees it grows on trees and they've actually these researchers have actually like released white papers showing people here's how you do it here's how essentially make a water filter from twigs and things like that with the idea that um you know this is readily available it's cheap to make and it can be actually used to create clean drinking water in areas of the world where that's not possible where up until now there's been kind of expensive Uh, first world intervention or machinery or things like that. And the trees growing in these areas can be used to create filters. And with a little bit of know-how and a little bit of, of funding, these filters can be made and be you know, uh, indigenous people can be taught to make these filters to help themselves with a drinking water issue. Very cool idea. Um, I see it actually could possibly have branches beyond that. Ha, branches. That was unintentional pun. Could have branches beyond that. Uh, But it's, it's very cool. Just seeing nature's filter being used to filter our own drink water. Cool stuff, Andrew. Thank you for sending that to me. Also, um, in the last episode with the completely arbitrary guys, I was trying to remember what those coppiced fences, like sheep fences and things were made. And, um, just colloquially they're called waddle hurdles. The hurdle is the fence. It's called a waddle. Um, you might be familiar with the term waddle and daub, or maybe you, you, uh, stick stuff in between logs or chinking in between logs essentially you're taking hazels or willows primarily they are coppiced and then they're woven together to create these hurdles it's called a waddle hurdle i had several people who had also asked hey what was that called and several people who made suggestions um, to the point where i ended up having to go and look it up i can't remember i saw it on something it might have been like victorian farm or something like that that old uh, pbs thing that dropped on youtube until pbs took it down Uh, it was very cool anyway a waddle hurdle Uh, google it look it up it's pretty cool it's a really cool looking fence idea so let's uh let's move on to the elms so my featured species is specifically ulmus americana uh the american elm and most people uh, actually there's probably quite a few people listening who can remember when the elms were on every street corner in america it wasn't that long ago that dutch elm disease ravaged them it started kind of kicking off around prohibition maybe a little bit earlier than that so 1920s and 30s is when things really started to kick off but it wasn't like somebody flicked a switch and all the elm trees were gone in two years it definitely spread so there are people who are around in the 50s that remember when elms were everywhere and the elm tree it was immediately recognized as um Shade tolerant, sun tolerant, poor soil tolerant, concrete tolerant, and it was planted everywhere to provide shade in cityscapes. It's a great shade tree. It kind of grows in like a vase-like shape. In fact, that's one of the easy ways to identify an elm is that vase shape. And not just American elm, but many different elms. They tend to have that same um, silhouette, if you will and they began to be planted by developers because they very very quickly grew up fast they didn't require a lot of maintenance they were able to tolerate all the nastiness in cities and again think about like industrial age cities and frankly the sheer pollution before we kind of figured out that we needed to not do that stuff so um, they were everywhere and Dutch elm, very similar to what we're dealing with, with um, thousand canker, with powder post, with emerald ash borer. It was an introduced from you know somewhere else, brought in on the back of something, um, and Dutch elm was really a fungus that began to just kill these trees like mad they were just coming down left and right in many instances when the tree is infected it would be within a matter of years before that tree was dead and gone Um, but it began to spread basically from coast to coast so certainly as you move further west the elm trees have hung around a little bit longer it's really similar to the american chestnut blight in that it's one of those just sad stories of the tree world where it's just nothing left. It's not nearly as sad as the chestnut, whereas the chestnut was completely wiped out. And while we've talked in the past about some genetic engineering and bringing chestnuts back, the elm, it really is susceptible to this after it's a couple years old. And because, and one of the reasons the elm was planted so widely is because it it just takes in anything and it spreads really easily. So there are elm trees popping up everywhere. There's saplings all over the place. But when they get to like two or three years old, they get infected by Dutch elm and it's all over. So elm as a lumber species today, they're generally small boards because the trees never really get that big. The trees die off and you know they get cut down and you end up with um, you know telephone pole sized trees. Some lumber can still come from that but yeah, it's kind of the sad story. It's like they're always, they're never really allowed to grow to maturity. Sometimes it happens, sometimes you see them. There are trees in kind of protected environments. If you go to an arboretum or something like that, I know up the road for me at Longwood Gardens, they have a couple of elm trees. And I don't know what they're doing to keep them, you know, away from Dutch Elm. Um, I'm sure that I'm sure actually I should go up there and talk to them. I'd love to, uh, I'd love to interview somebody at Longwood Gardens. Maybe that's for a future episode. But you know, somehow people who know what they're doing are are keeping them away from Dutch Elm or maybe they figured out a way to treat it or hold it at bay. But um, there are cultivars today that are, are being grown that will be immune to Dutch Elm. And maybe we can see those taking over, but it's also one of those slow introduction things. If you run into something that's resistant, you have to worry, what might it outcompete. It's the same thing that, that's going against the American chestnut. If we'll create a, a genetically engineered super chestnut, what kind of impact will that have on the rest of the ecosystem if you introduce this? Will that chestnut start choking out the oaks and choking out the maples? It's hard to say. So I imagine even though we have cultivars that are resistant to Dutch elm, it's probably gonna be some time before they kind of get introduced into the mainstream population but let's talk about it from a lumber perspective. Um, Let's start specifically with the American elm. This is kind of a a light, brown to creamy wood think of it in comparison to white oak the same kind of color palette um, it has a coarse to medium texture with some open grain it is a ring porous wood but the pores are much much smaller than something like white oak so think of it like white oak but not nearly as grainy so like crossing a, a diffuse porous wood think of something like like maple crossed with white oak you've got that brown color you certainly have grain patterns you have more pronounced um, like a flats on a flat zone board than The cathedral grains would be more pronounced because of those pores are a little bit larger. But in between all that, you've got kind of a denser, smoother, closed poured wood that you might find in something like maple. Um, The American elm is, uh, I frankly, I love working with it. In fact, I've got a board right here in my hand um, of American elm. See, American elm and rock elm. Did you hear the difference? Yeah, I didn't either. But yeah, I have Rock Elm in one hand and American Elm in the other hand. And I'll get to that. American Elm, for me, as a hand tool user, I love it. it it's uh, it's about an 800 Janko hardness. So it falls right in there with like cherry and walnut. It's really kind of my sweet spot for hand tool woods. Um, it gives me that kind of light brown white oak look without the 1400 or 1200 Janka hardness of white oak. Really, really lovely to work with. The relatively close texture in between the ring porous lines um, means that it, it chisels and it planes extraordinarily well. Something more akin to like soft maple or red maple. Really, really like it there. Um, it is a, um, often can have kind of a knotty appearance. And as I said, the boards tend to be kind of narrow and short because the trees themselves don't get that big. The trees being um, city trees primarily, they're allowed to branch quickly and form shade very, very quickly, which is why they tend to have a lot of knots. If somebody were to take the time to grow it as like a lumber producing wood, it would produce less knots. But because Dutch elm kind of kicks in and kills them off after about two to three years, nobody has bothered to try to grow elm for a lumber wood. So the lumber that we do get is essentially from trees fell in cities. Um, and it's going to be naughty because that tree has been allowed to branch to form a shade tree. That is its principal, um, role in the urban canopy is as a shade tree. Um, movement wise, it is, it's interesting. Um, it moves a lot. <laughs> it's got a tr ratio of 2.3 uh, what's nuts to me tangentially it moves a hell of a lot at 9.5 percent. but what's crazy is the radial number four point uh, yeah 4.2 percent radial like there are a lot of species that's their tangential number their radial moves a lot so if you're working with this plan for it to move around a fair bit but I guess the upside to it being a small tree and small boards is wood movement is a percentage game, right? You know, 6% of 12 inches is, is more um, than 6% of three inches. And if you've got a three inch wide board, that 9% movement may not make that big of a deal. But it is particularly interesting when you look at that, that TR ratio and I look at the structure of the tree and look at the ingrain and kind of dig into things and figure out why does it move so much radially i can see why perhaps it would move so much tangentially because it's got densely packed fibers um and the the ring porous nature the pores at least in american elm tend to be very narrow so your your early wood your denser material is a much wider band then you've got this real thin almost like a single pore wide of of the um excuse me, yeah, your early wood is the pores, your late wood is the denser stuff in between. So you've got a little bit of expansion room um, in that, that buffer zone of the open pores, but the pores are kind of small. And because it's just like one layer of pores wide, there's not that much buffer room. So you've got a lot of, of denser, closer packed material that as it absorbs wood, it doesn't have a lot of place to go. So it does make sense to me that it would move more tangentially. When I look at the ray form pattern, The rays are, you know, kind of medium size. um, But the interlocked nature of the grain, I think, is what really causes, like, as the, as the, those densely packed fibers want to expand the rays don't resist that much and the interlock nature kind of like trumps the rays i like to think of the rays as like spokes on a wheel and you know the spokes in a wheel is what gives that wheel strength what gives that wheel balance it prevents you know it gives something to anchor the hub to well <clears throat> those rays because the grain is interlocked which means the rays don't really get to work like spokes they don't necessarily radiate out Uh, radiate out radially from the center because the grain is interlocking and twisting and turning, you get more of a, um, I don't want to quite say double helix, but that's the best metaphor. So you don't necessarily have that like compression and and, um, tensile strength of a straight radial spoke. It's kind of mixed around and messed around with that interlocking, which is, I think what allows for so much radial movement it's particularly interesting as a species to see so much movement and and at face value look at it and you know you might think oh this this looks like it could be maple looks like maybe it could be oak with some of that graining but it's so much less stable um and i think i think that's why i could be wrong here but i think that's why um Certainly, I would view it as a strong wood, and the fact that it's interlocked means that it does not split well at all. In fact, historically speaking, um, both American elm, but also some of the European elms like the old Dutch elm or the witch elm or the English elm, those tended to actually be used for hubs for wheels, for wheelwrights, because the stuff wouldn't split. And if you think about a wooden hub and a wooden wheel, it's a whole bunch of mortises. Everywhere where those those spokes or, or spindles of a wooden wheel branch out to the outer rim, there is a mortise. So you're taking this hub, you're drilling a hole through the middle for the axle, but then you're also boring a bunch of mortises all the way around the outside of it. And you're, you're basically turning that hub into Swiss cheese. If you were using something like oak, that sucker would split the minute it was put under load elm does not split Uh, in fact uh, i joke because i have a couple Hanschel school students who recently took uh, a chair making class with christopher schwartz and he sourced some elm and they were essentially building a stick chair where you rely upon wood with a wood that doesn't rive real well um Chris, of course, is on this thing where he's able to build, you know, chairs from doesn't necessarily have to be green and ribbon wood. He's shown a lot of different ways to do that. And thank you, Chris, for showing us that. But I thought it was particularly funny. You're using elm like the stuff does not split. Like if you wanted a wood that you could use for, you know, tool handles, that might be a good wood to use because it doesn't split. In fact, historically speaking, elm was used to make hockey sticks. If you think about a hockey stick, it goes under a lot of stress, but it's also really, really thin. Like the handle, the, the the shaft of a hockey stick, it can't be more than maybe an inch thick and maybe an inch and quarter wide. Uh, it might even be thinner than an inch thick. And then go down into the actual, the blade? Is that what we call it on a hockey stick? I don't know. Canadians, speak up. Um, but it's also quite thin, but it's gotta be resilient. You can have that thing split on you. When you think of the abuse that it gets out on the ice, it's a perfect wood for that. You can get it real, real thin, but it won't fall apart on you in that respect. It's also was actually used for baskets quite a bit. Um, and you know, and sometimes like willow baskets and things like that, you'll find the inner bark is used or even black ash will sometimes be used the inner bark. Um, this is actually found that, um, it can be peeled and, not just the bark, but the wood itself can be peeled. And because it doesn't split, um, you can kind of peel it down thin. What would be interesting, and I couldn't find the shearing strength number, but I suspect that the shearing strength number of American Elm is quite low, which allowed for making baskets that way. Today, it's primarily used as a pulp product like i said it grows super fast it spreads super fast like you pretty much if you're growing a pulp plantation um you generally everything gets cut down you know clear cut and then broadcast seeded and grows back up and and cut down every couple of years i would suspect that they don't have to do a whole lot of broadcast seeding of the elm because it spreads so rapidly all by itself but because the trees you know if left two to three years old they die off due to dutch elm so it's kind of it it pains me to say it's kind of the perfect species for making paper i suppose if you have to continue for pulp products like you've got to you've got to turn over that plantation really really quick for the best pulp products i guess that's making lemonade out of lemons you know mother nature in some respects has selected well not mother nature it's probably mankind's intervention that brought in dutch elm in the first place but it's been selected to only live a couple of years so we're making pulp out of it that's primarily how it's used today, unfortunately. Um, a lot of times people will actually confuse American Elm with ash. Uh, it's certainly quite a bit softer. Rock Elm, um, this piece I have in my hand, uh, looks almost identical to my workbench, which is made out of ash. Certainly when I look at the ingrain, grain, it's a different story. Ash has wider um, pores. This is most uh, closely packed. But one of the things that you'll find that's common amongst Elms is what's actually known as uh, Ulmaform Elm grain or omiform variation. And if you look real close in those denser um, earlywood areas, um, in the flat on, you'll find kind of a zigzag pattern. In some ways, it reminds me of Zelkova. And off the top of my head, I don't know if Zelkova is related or not. I should look that up. Um, I didn't list Zelkova as an alternative species, but it very well may be because I think Zelkova represents uh, presents some omiform um, patterning. But it's a good way to tell to tell uh, an ash from um, an elm. And look up Ulmiform, U-L-M-I-F-O-R-M. Look up Ulmiform patterning and you'll find all kinds of images. And I'm sure you've seen it. You've probably noticed it very quickly what uh, what it's about. And yeah, look at that. Zelkova is in the Ulmiaceae family. So it is maybe distantly related, but uh, it does appear to be um, related Two. Let's find the genus here real quick. It is the Zelkova is the genus, but it is the Ulmaceae family. So it does look like I'm not making that up. That kind of zigzag pattern that I love in Zelkova actually probably is some Ulmiform. Uh, 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 variation. So, yeah, the the stickers that everybody's getting that list the alternative species hackberry is an excellent alternative species to American elm. Um, even some of the mineral staining that hackberry gets, elm can sometimes be prone to that as well. But um, those of you getting the sticker, feel free to write in zelkova on there as as a more um, call it e- exotic. It's a tree that I think is native to Japan these days. Um, the Japanese zelkova, or the uh, kiyaki, I think as it's known. Um, anyway, totally unplanned tangent there uh, about elm. It's uh, um, one of those trees, uh, as I said, the morphology is kind of vase shaped. As we move beyond the American elm, you can very quickly kind of break up, separate the elms into two parts. There are the softer elms like the, the um, American elm that I've been speaking about that has that kind of 800... Um, 800 janka hardness Uh, the red elm very very similar certainly a little bit redder in the wood uh, but about the same janka hardness the density or or weight um, we've talked a lot about weight like um, western red cedar is like 22 pounds per cubic foot american elm is going to be like 38 pounds Um, red elm about 38 pounds whereas rock elm as you probably guessed is one of the harder elms and that's 47 pounds um, per per cubic foot so very very similar to white oak but rock elm i find is a little bit redder in appearance like much redder than you would find in red oak but a similar janka hardness but it's still while you could still call it coarse grain it has that grainy kind of oaky appearance but again it's it's a smoother oak appearance. Um, I really like the look. Actually, frankly, one of the things that I don't like about red oak and sometimes white oak is that heavily grained appearance. And unfortunately, I think it's because it was associated with kind of cheap store furniture a lot in the 70s. And like all the fake um, wood paneling tended to be oak form. And it just... I don't know. There's just something that rings about sunken dining rooms with heavy shag carpet <laughs> about red oak. Um certainly red oak has some of its own problems, but I love this because so much of the time that kind of brown color, if you're looking for that in your color palette, it's hard to find it without going with oak. And elm gives us that opportunity. Red elm, I find especially gives you a little bit deeper Um, excuse me, rock elm tends you to give it a little bit deeper color. Well, for that matter, red elm does too. I don't find it to be nearly as deep uh, a red as rock elm. But again, rock elm would be on the hard side. Uh, Cedar elm, ironically, is one of the hard elms, even though cedar, I immediately think a softer wood. Um, The soft ones are American elm, uh, English elm, red elm, and Dutch elm. So for you folks across the pond in England and, and Holland, Dutch elm, obviously from Holland, English elm, from England, um, also found across Europe. Witch elm is found across uh, a lot of Europe. Um, the American elm, it's mostly uh, an East Coast, slightly Midwestern species. Um, the red elm moves a little bit more into the Midwest as we're moving further west. The red elm kind of takes over a little bit and the rock elm really takes over in the Midwest and even can move into, into the Rockies to some extent, as I said, the tree grows quite well. It spreads very, very quickly, but unfortunately all of these elms are susceptible to Dutch elm. I was reading very recently about a few cultivars that are resistant to it, um, but they were ones that I'd never heard of, ones that I'd never heard of in the context of, of lumber. Um, so unfortunately, we're still kind of fighting that. Um, but I, I think that all of the elms have their place. The trees are at least growing to the point where some lumber can be produced. And with so much of the conversations we've had about urban logging and like going back to that episode with Cambium Carbon about repurposing the waste stream. These are trees that are still being grown in cities everywhere. And go to any kind of um, specific commercial development. Like think of any hotel. Go into the parking lot of any hotel and there are trees planted all over the place to provide shade. And in fact, that's what it was. The Siberian elm. I could be wrong in this, but I'm pretty certain the Siberian elm is one of the species that has been known to be resistant to Dutch elm. But go to a Hilton, a Holiday Inn, a Comfort Inn. You're going to find elm trees all over. All over their parking lot, you might find some some Siberian elm. I know certainly out in uh, in Colorado, they're all over the place because it does quite well in the dry climate. Siberian elm, that is. Um, you also find basswood or linden in a lot of those parking lots because it it grows up it's a nice kind of pretty ornamental tree but all these elms grow they quickly provide shade but they're also somewhat ornamental in nature so as far as repurposing that waste stream of all of those elm trees let's just say planted in hotel parking lots grow up to be three years old and then they die they get taken down and replanted well ideally Instead of just taking down and turning into mulch, which I'm afraid might be happening, if we repurpose that waste stream like we spoke about with Cambium Carbon, there could be a fair bit of of elm available for lumber. Now, is it going to be wide boards? No, but, you know, make frame and panel joinery, you know, lots of rail and styles that are two and a half inches wide and you can do all kinds of stuff with elm. So I think it's something that even though Dutch elm is, is kind of, I can't say wiped it out, but caused it problems it's something that we shouldn't ignore as a lumber species and because it is so reproducible and so widespread it's something we actually should really focus on and if we as woodworkers start to generate some interest in it maybe we can stop it being turned into mulch and turned more into lumber so all of you wood miser owners out there all of you urban sawyers out there grab up that elm i guarantee you there's lots of it available out there and uh make it into boards I personally love working with it. I've worked with with, uh, Rock Elm, uh, I've worked with Red Elm, I've worked with Witch Elm, I've worked with Dutch Elm, I've worked with American Elm. Um, I've only actually turned Dutch Elm, but still, I've worked with it. It's really cool stuff. It's also one of those things where you could kind of set it all on a workbench together and it kind of sort of all looks the same. You'll find some minor color variations, like I mentioned, but it definitely, once you start to recognize what Elm looks like, it definitely all looks elm-like. So while I'm focusing on the American elm, because really it is the most widespread, the most common version of elm, and when people just say elm, they're probably referring to American elm. Um, But if you run across rock or witch or cedar or, or red, It's a worthy species to look at. The big differentiator as far as how it works is those hard elms and those soft elms. Um, The softer elms are gonna be equivalent to something like cherry or walnut, 800 janka hardness. The hard elms are gonna be like red or white oak, anywhere in the 12 to 1300 Janka hardness. The movement numbers tend to be about the same. They all tend to be about 2.0 to 2.3 in a TR ratio, and they have that relatively high radial numbers. So just be aware of that. The other thing that I think you'll find is they are so similar in a lot of ways. I don't think a lot of people in the lumber world have put a lot of emphasis on doing a whole lot of testing. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of the numbers that I found, people were kind of like, yeah, American elms this, it's probably about the same. Um, so I don't, I, I can't necessarily attest to the sheer validity of some of the numbers you might find, but based on my experience working with a couple different species of elm, I think it's all pretty similar. It's either hard or it's soft elm. So that's my little feature on Elm. Uh, I love the species. It's it's definitely something that you could you should seek out and and try to add it to your own shop and know that it is an imminently sustainable species, despite that kind of unfortunate sunsetting nature at a really young age. To me, that's even more reason that we should use it for that repurposing the waste stream that I keep harping on and on and on about. Sorry about that. And actually, um, if anybody's read the book, American Canopy, there's some really good chapters in that about Dutch Elm and kind of how that came apart. Um, which by the way, uh, American Canopy is a great book. Uh, oh shoot. Who wrote that? Um, please hold, uh, American Canopy, something Radka or something like that. Um, Eric Rutko, I was way off. Uh, Eric Rutko is the author of that. Really, really great book. It's kind of like the founding of our country from a tree's perspective. Really, really good read. Anyway, let's move on to some questions here. So we've been talking about elm and all the various varieties of it. So um, this is why I picked this question. Joshua wrote in and said, we have, uh, we have to take down a Japanese walnut tree, Juglans ailantifolia, because it's endangering the house growing up we called it a heart nut tree because of the shape of the nuts i found out that the tree is japanese walnut and that heart nut is a cultivar of japanese walnut according to wikipedia um, the wood database has no info on this wood where can i find out more about its technical properties so i can figure out what it might be like to use the lumber so as a general i wanted to look at this from a general perspective we'll certainly talk about the the japanese walnut but like the elm, the many varieties of elm and the many varieties of walnut, but then you also have this thing called a cultivar. And a cultivar is an intentional crossbreeding of several different species. It's a man-made thing. It's been cultivated. It's not naturally occurring. So in order to find out the working properties of a cultivar, it's gonna be difficult because generally cultivars, this is this is a horticological, Horticultural, that's the word I was looking for. Horticultural thing where it's not really a lumber thing. These are people who are, who in some instances, grafting or breeding together two species for a reason. So let's look at the Japanese cherry. Um, It's been specifically uh, created to produce beautiful blooms. So it's actually a sterile cultivar that creates a double blossom and it's absolutely gorgeous about eight days a year (laughs) until those blossoms fall off. Um, But that's why it was cultivated, to create that that incredible aesthetic. So what you have to look at when you're looking for cultivars is probably not from a lumber perspective, but why? Why was the cultivar created and more importantly, from what? What did that cultivar create? What was it crossbred with? And it's generally only a couple of species. I, I don't know of a lot where they've done you know, like two or three. Maybe if you have a cultivar of a cultivar, you might get really meta and, and you find that it's you know three and four species involved, but then obviously you've got some genetic dilution that's happening. For the most part, you're talking about two different species. So as far as what are the working properties of that cultivar, well, where did it come from? And ultimately the, the heart nut was bred because of the nut, um, because of that heart shape. And it it is similar in many ways to the butternut. And that's kind of where it started. Somebody looked at a butternut and said, hmm, I wonder if we can make that better. So they created a cultivar using butternut and several other species. And that's where the Japanese walnut or the heart nut came from. So that's your clue right there. It's going to be very similar. Well, certainly, you know, it's going to be similar to a lot of the other uh, species in the Yuglans, um genus. <clears throat> but let's just look at American black walnut of a Janko hardness of about 850 and butternut with a Janko hardness of about 400. So those are both Juglans, and one might, some people call butternut white walnut. They're very closely related, but dramatically different working characteristics. They look very similar. Like butternut is like bleached walnut. Graining texture, everything looks very much the same but um, it's so much softer. And I think simply because you don't have that same level of density that makes walnut that chocolatey brown. So the Euglund's Eilantifolia is much closer to butternut than any of the other walnuts. So as far as what are the working properties of it, I would look at butternut. Um, In other words, Joshua, oh yeah, you wanna use that. Butternut is a joy to work with it's lovely to finish. It's it in many ways. It's kind of unique. It hits that kind of creamy color without going all the way to the maple to the white woods. It's kind of halfway in between the elms and that kind of faux white oak look and the white woods of walnuts and some of the soft woods like the spruces and things like that. Um, it definitely. I I think in many ways it's it's unique. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if you found that the the wood of that walnut i'd actually love to see it i haven't actually seen a cross section of the tree to see if the japanese walnut tree actually is a darker brown color i wouldn't be surprised if it's much more of a of a bleached uh whiter creamier color so in terms of if i run across a species and i'm able to identify it as a cultivar you're probably not going to find any kind of technical properties as a lumber species simply because that's not the point um, and the cultivar is, is usually unique or rare enough of its own right that no one is thinking to use it for lumber. Um, in many instances it's been cultivated and it's still growing, you know, it's, it's in a protected environment, not an environment where it's going to overgrow something and endanger a house like we have in Joshua's particular instance. So seek out what it was cultivated from. You generally can find that and that will give you your clue. So same thing that was going on with elm, kind of look at, um, the different species. And you can find that they're very, very similar. And ultimately you can break it down into the harder ones and the softer ones. And I think walnut in many ways is, is very much the same. There's kind of the butternuts and the non-butternuts, the softer and the harder walnuts. Um, I get that. I've gotten that question quite a bit about cultivars um, and a little bit of Googling. Uh, you'll figure out why it was cultivated, why the cultivar was created and what they started with. And there's your there's your answer right there. Um, this was interesting. I got an email from Six, um, who is a currently a cabinet maker, but also had a previous career in trail work. So, And he spent uh, five years building, maintaining trails up in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. So first of all, Six, thank you. I've hiked on many of those trails. I appreciate the steps that you've put in and the bridges and things like that. All of that trail maintenance, both from a hiker, but from a mountain biking perspective, um, it's literally backbreaking work but uh, just, it's amazing, fantastic stuff. So, so thank you for that. Long story short, um, he, he and his team, basically uh, they go out into the forest and they fell timbers to create things like bridges and, and boundaries and steps and all that stuff to, to make these trails. And sometimes in the past, they've actually brought in lumber and and hike it in, but that's kind of a problem because the further into the backcountry you go, the more impractical that becomes. So they'll go, you know, hundreds of yards off the trail. So you're not obviously making a trail and then cutting a tree next to the trail. So they're going hundreds of yards off the trail to fell a tree. And then they've got to, you know, lug that material down to the, to the trail and do some work with it. So for the most part, the wood is green. For the most part they're doing the felling and the milling by hand because they're packing in tools. Occasionally they'll have a chainsaw and an Alaskan mill for this. <clears throat> he has tended to use spruce for most of this stuff because as a lot of us know in the northeast during the the bad days when we just cut everything down in the, you know, end of the 19th century, Those forests were devastated. What grew back in like crazy was the spruce. So now the White Mountains are just covered in spruce. Occasionally you'll find some oaks and some maples, but it's spruce, spruce, spruce everywhere. All kinds of different kinds of spruce. So they've been using spruce, but ultimately spruce, it's not really a good exterior wood. I think it's graded as kind of moderately durable, but when we're talking about ground contact, even sometimes buried to some extent, the stuff really doesn't last that long. So Six is saying good trail work, good, good working um, material for trail work should last anywhere from 20 to 30 years. And if it's not good, it's not gonna last 20 to 30 years. And he's saying, you know, occasionally we pass some oaks and some maples, but we're using spruce because of just the sheer volume of it. Is this a mistake? Well, I think it's a lesser of two evils. I wouldn't go with the, the maples and the oaks um, because, well, first of all, they're felling it in the spring because you can't really get up there in the winter and the, most of the work is being done um, in, in the spring. So the sap is rising. Well, maple, what do we know about maple sap? It's maple syrup. <laughs> it's really, really sweet. The bugs are gonna love it. So if you fell that tree, and you debark it, like think of the tree as kind of being like the armor in some respects for the living tree. For a dead tree, a felled tree, the bark um, is a great place for all the bugs and stuff to hang out and build colonies. But also once you take the bark away, you're kind of like removing some of the work and those bugs are just going to go to town on a sweet tree like maple. Oak well, what's going on right now in oak powder post powder post beetles like crazy so if you're felling a green sap rising oak tree the powder post beetles are going to tear that apart plus you're felling this tree and having to lug it both of those trees are going to be significantly heavier and significantly harder to work with than spruce so i think what you're doing using spruce simply because it's just everywhere but also because it's going to be easier to to move it it's going to be easier to work with and you know, it's not gonna fall apart. Um, there are certainly less uh, attractive trees for this, but I think as you probably know, what what's making it last is, not so much is the tree rotting away but like how well constructed is it if it's being buried how well is the dirt you know packed in around it and things like that and especially for things like mountain bike trails you know that bike will tear things up and all of the wood being used is in a state of decay anyway so the the holer you can keep your logs so um certainly debarking is a good idea just to to you know to get rid of the colonies of bugs. Yes, you are exposing the, the wood, but you're also kind of retarding that initial infestation. Um, you're leaving that log as whole as you can. So it is maintaining some of its structure. The minute you start cutting it into boards, then you start, you know, you're kind of making that decay happen a lot faster. So I think if you know that you're going to be doing building certain bridges, if you can fell a tree that is about the right diameter for what you're looking for, certainly it will be easier to manufacture it. But I don't think you're going to find a species that's going to be Imminently, that much more durable, and if you did, it would be in less supply, it would be a lot heavier, it'd be a lot more resinous, it'd be harder to work with. So, I think in this instance, you're on the right path. Ha! There's another unintentional pun uh, for trail making, uh, and that's using the spruce. Really, really interesting to hear from you, though. I, I appreciate that. He actually sent some pictures. Um, I just love seeing that because, as a hiker, mountain biker, camper, uh, love it. Love to see that type of work being done. Finally. Uh, let's move on to Nick's question. He says, I have an eight quarter walnut that I want to make one and a half inch wide face frames. My question is, can I rip them into one inch strips along the edge to get my stock, or would I be better off ripping wider and resawing to four quarter? My question is, am I going to be creating or, or releasing possibly more stress doing it one way or the other? Um, would I be getting quarter sawn stock by edge ripping? And the reason that I wanna bring this up, as you guys know, I I try not to go too deep into the woodworking side of things on this particular show, that's what Wood Talk's for. Um, But this is, the answer is yes, do this. So if you're not picturing what's happening, imagine you've got a flat sawn eight quarter board. Um, So that eight quarter board is, is two inches thick. If you're looking to make a one and a half inch wide face frame, Um, if you were to take a strip, imagine it's a six inch wide, eight quarter flats on walnut board. Imagine you were to take across that six inch width, lay out a one inch, you know, one inches from the edge and rip down that line. So now what I'm left with is a one inch wide, two inch thick board. But if I rotate that board 90 degrees, now I have a two inch face that's one inches thick and it's completely quarter sawn. Because if you have a flats on board and you go to the edge, you'll see quarter sawn figure. If you think about how the the, the growth rings intersect the face, assuming it's really flats on, you're gonna have a quarter sawn board. I've done this on a number of occasions where I needed really narrow stock for rail and style. I made a mirror recently where I needed narrow stock. It was only like one inch wide, and I wanted really, really stable material because I was veneering over top of it. I ripped from a flats on board to get perfectly quartered material. Or if you're doing rail and styles and you're looking for rift or really straight grain quartered material, it's a perfect way to get that nice uniform grain by ripping a strip from a thicker board, rotating it 90 degrees, and there's your quartered material. Are you releasing more stress by doing it one way or another? I would say you're going to encounter more movement issues by resawing an eight-quarter board across that six-inch width than you would by ripping a one inch strip away. Um, the potential, first of all, you now have a quarter on board, you might get some bowing um, you know, along that longer strip. It depends on how long that strip is. But here again, if you're making face frame stock, um, the release of tension won't be nearly that bad assuming it was dried well. Um, your face frame is probably gonna end up being three quarters of an inch thick. Um, so if you rip a one inch strip away, you'll get a little bit of bowing, you can probably flatten it out. Um, especially over a shorter face frame for like a cabinet door or something the. You're gonna get movement either way, but less movement than if you resaw that six inch wide board right smack down the middle. So much tension being released, so much moisture differential in general when you resaw. Uh, ripping it is gonna be a heck of a lot better. So that's the other thing from here from people all the time talking about buying lumber and specifically seeking out quarter saw material. Quarter saw material sometimes it's just a matter of how you look at the board, how you orient the board. By rotating that edge, up, that edge becomes your face. And now you've got a quarter sawn board. So constantly think in terms of in the round, just because you're sold this flat sawn board doesn't mean it always has to be flat sawn. It's all about how you look at it, literally how you orient the board. Excellent question, Nick. Thank you for bringing that up. And if anybody doesn't follow that, um, there's a great project in the Hentool School called the Chippendale Mirror, where I actually show that in demonstration. That's that mirror I'm talking about. So um, I'm gonna take this time. I've never done this before and advertise my other business, the hand tool school. I have a woodworking school online that teaches hand tools and techniques. And I'm saying this now because as this releases, we're a couple days away from Black Friday and my annual Black Friday slash holiday sale is kicking off. So here's my shameless plug. It's not shameless. Let's we'll just call the hand tool school a sponsored this episode. If you want to save 30% off anything at the hand tool school, go over there starting Black Friday all the way through the end of the year. There's a coupon code you can use all that fun stuff check it out if you're interested in woodworking and learning hand tool techniques that's like my other business that's the bigger business than than the lumber update show if you will and i i try to keep them separate but you know what dang it it's my business it's my podcast i'm gonna promote it i love that my promotion is like in the waning seconds of this particular episode, it's like the worst possible place to promote it, I suppose. But anyway, um, yeah, that principle, I illustrate, I do that a lot, actually. Um, I just made a little, um, a little centerpiece for our Thanksgiving table. And I did the same thing where uh, I ripped thin little strips off of a board, rotate it 90 degrees. And that's the piece that I need. Excellent stuff. So that's the end of this show. I will just say, keep sending in your questions, folks. Go to lumberupdate.com. Um, there's a contact form there. You can email me at lumberupdate at gmail.com. You can even reach out to me on Instagram. Um, although I will say, if you have a question for the show, it's better to email me or send it into the contact form. Oftentimes I get some cool questions in my uh, my DMs on Instagram and then I forget about them and they're very difficult to find. So if you do submit a question on in my DMs uh, and I have responded to you, most often I'm saying, hey, could you email that to me so that I don't forget it? But yeah, lumberupdate.com or lumberupdate at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. I love these questions. Keep them coming. And remember... If you're an $8 or higher sponsor of the show, you're getting an American Elm sticker in the mail. And if you're not, you have till the end of the month to be a sponsor and still get that sticker. Come December 1st, anyone who joins at that point will be getting December sticker. And I got to tell you, it's a departure from anything we've done before. So look forward to that one. See y'all later. And you know, if you're listening to this one, it's released. Happy Thanksgiving to those of you in America and those of you elsewhere. Happy Thursday when that hits.